the Boston Celtics select Len Bias of the University of Maryland. On June 17, 1986, the Boston Celtics drafted Len Bias, a star forward at the University of Maryland. Red Auerbach, the coach of the Celtics, was thrilled. I'll tell you, this is a great kid. As a matter of fact, you know, Larry Bird and the owners, you know, Alan Cohn and Don Gasson, they're all high on him. He's the guy we wanted. We got him. The feeling was mutual. Now my dream has come true. Now I have to do is go out and play. Mike Krzyzewski, the legendary Duke basketball coach, said that in nearly 30 years of coaching, the two best players he's ever seen were Michael Jordan and Len Bias. Len Bias with 29. Oh, my! And he made the steal and a jam! What a play by Bias! Holy cow! And that cuts the lead down to five. Now, that was incredible for Len Bias. Here's sports journalist Michael Wilborn describing Bias in ESPN's 30 for 30 documentary series. He had the purest jump shot I've ever seen. The purest, straight up, off the floor, perfect form, perfect elbow, perfect release point, perfect follow through. And... It was a, a, a vision. It was a work of art. The day after the draft, Bias signed a lucrative contract with the shoe company Reebok. He had everything he'd ever wanted, and the future was limitless. I consider myself lucky, but more blessed. That luck wouldn't last. Later that night, Bias invited some friends and teammates to celebrate at his Maryland dorm room. The celebration was cut tragically short. A local success story took a tragic turn this morning. Len Bias, the Maryland University basketball star on his way to becoming a world champion Boston Celtic, died of an apparent heart attack today at Leland Memorial Hospital in Prince George's County. At this point, we don't know what the real cause of death for this 22-year-old rising star of the Maryland basketball team. Determining the real cause only compounded the pain of Bias's death. Suspicion of drug use followed the sudden death last week of 22-year-old Len Bias. Today, as Eric Ingberg reports, the medical examiner issued his findings. Medical tests confirmed today that star basketball player Len Bias was killed by cocaine. Len's friends, family, and teammates were shocked. There was no evidence Bias had been a regular cocaine user, a finding that came as no surprise to those who knew him. It was an accidental overdose, but the public and the government decided to hold someone responsible for it. That someone was Brian Tribble, the friend who brought the cocaine to the dorm room party and offered it to Bias. Maryland prosecutors charged Tribble for Bias's death and took him to trial. In 1986 and 1988, Congress passed anti-drug abuse acts, in part so that suppliers like Tribble could be prosecuted for causing drug-related deaths. Similar laws, known as Len Bias laws, are still used today to punish friends and family members of overdose victims. But these laws raise a difficult question. Who can we blame for accidents? Welcome to Ministry of Ideas. I'm Zachary Davis. Today, we're exploring how luck shapes our judgments and whether we should let it. To understand the Len Bias laws, we have to understand how the American legal system came to its view of criminal responsibility. That story starts in Europe in the Middle Ages. In medieval Europe, criminal responsibility was determined mainly by the consequences of a person's actions. If you caused some damage, you'd receive the same punishment whether you meant to do it or not. In the 12th and 13th century, however, Changes in the Catholic Church's canon law put new emphasis on an accused person's intentions. Now you'd be punished more severely for causing harm deliberately than for doing it by accident. This position more closely aligned with the Christian understanding of sin as evil intent, not merely what a person does, but what he wills and desires in his heart. It also reflected Christian belief in free will. 
that humans were made in the image of God and could freely choose between right and wrong. The idea that guilt depended on intention became the foundational legal concept of mens rea, or the guilty mind. These legal precedents spread to England and later to England's American colonies. Through the 18th and 19th centuries, the American criminal justice system largely emphasized individual intention as the root of responsibility and guilt. But at the turn of the 20th century, American ideas of criminal justice changed. The new disciplines of social science began showing how environmental factors could determine human behavior, especially how the poverty and the broken family structures that characterize modern urban life might lead people to commit crimes. Social scientists, policymakers, and activists proposed a new progressive vision of crime as a matter of social, not individual responsibility. The criminal justice system responded to this vision with policies like parole for felons and court-monitored probation for young and first-time offenders. Courts were staffed with social workers and psychologists. Reformers believed the justice system's main goal was not to take revenge on criminals, but to rehabilitate them. If society was partly responsible for causing people to commit crimes, it was also responsible for helping them. A series of Supreme Court decisions in the 1960s strengthened the rights of accused people and prisoners. And in 1967, President Lyndon B. Johnson commissioned the report, The Challenge of Crime in a Free Society, which called on the government to fight crime by fighting poverty. Elizabeth Bartholet, a member of the commission that wrote the report, described their legal philosophy at George Washington University in February 2018. We were concerned with um, the poor people. We were concerned with not just the victims of crime, but the perpetrators, and we saw them as victims. And if they had to go into prisons, we were concerned with having prisons be rehabilitative so that these people could come out and have a chance to become members of society. But as crime rates rose in the mid-60s, many politicians turned their focus from fighting crime to fighting criminals. For them, there was no room for nuance. This was simply a battle between good and evil. In recent years, crime in this country has grown nine times as fast as population. This is a Richard Nixon presidential campaign ad from 1968. We owe it to the decent and law-abiding citizens of America to take the offensive against the criminal forces that threaten their peace and their security and to rebuild respect for law across this country. I pledge to you, the wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in America. That same year, the Republican Party platform affirmed this new law and order rhetoric and came down firmly on the side of individual responsibility. Quote, we must reestablish the principle that criminals are responsible for their crimes. Starting in the 1970s, the country witnessed an aggressive crackdown on crime. Gone was the idea that society was partially responsible for criminal behavior. Instead of rehabilitating criminals or even deterring crime, policies emphasized punishment. Meanwhile, panic was growing over the use of recreational drugs, especially beginning in the 1980s, a new drug that was more prevalent in black communities, crack cocaine. Steve Young reports on a new kind of cocaine called crack. It's going nationwide, especially among the young, a drug so pure and so strong, it might just as well be called crack of doom. Immediately after Len Bias's death, rumors spread that he had overdosed on crack. Tip O'Neill, the Democratic Speaker of the House, received enormous pressure from his Boston area constituents to do something in response to the basketball star's death and the crack epidemic it was seen to represent. O'Neill convened an emergency meeting of congressional committee leaders. 
Reporter Dan Baum recounts his words, quote, write me some goddamn legislation. We need to get out in front of this. The Republicans beat us to it in 1984, and I don't want that to happen again. I want dramatic new initiatives for dealing with crack and other drugs. One of those initiatives was the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. Signed into law by President Ronald Reagan, it created harsher penalties for possessing smaller amounts of drugs, especially crack, and imposed new mandatory minimum sentencing laws. Another was the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988. One of its statutes allowed people to be charged with 20 years to life in prison for providing drugs that led to another person's death. This statute became known as the Len Bias Law. The effects of the war on drugs were profound and long-lasting. In 1985, there were 9,500 people in federal prison on drug charges. By 2016, there were more than 85,000. Today, almost half a million people are incarcerated for drug offenses in prisons and jails nationwide, a highly disproportionate number of whom are black. Some of these defendants were charged under Len Bias laws, which more and more states have passed in recent decades. Many of the people prosecuted had no intention of causing an overdose death. Some of them even tried to save the victims' lives, but it's enough that they helped to provide the drug. Dan Mimna, a Pennsylvania law enforcement official, explained in a 2017 press conference about their plan to charge people under these land bias laws. Our goal is to make somebody responsible for that death. That's our goal from the outset of the investigation. But this insistence on making someone responsible goes against the principle that supposedly grounds our entire legal system, free will. We punish people for choosing to commit a crime. Criminal law has long recognized that a lack of free will can mean a lack of criminal responsibility. Since the Middle Ages, lawyers have accepted that people with mental disability or illness couldn't be considered guilty. But the defendant has to prove that they have a genuine mental defect. The default assumption in law is that adults are rational and free. The 1978 Supreme Court decision in United States v. Grayson reaffirmed this position. Quote, a foundation stone in our system of law, and particularly in our approach to punishment, sentencing, and incarceration, is the belief in freedom of the human will and a consequent ability and duty of the normal individual to choose between good and evil. This belief in free will justifies our system's emphasis on punishment, what the Harvard psychology professor Joshua Green calls retribution. The idea behind retribution is really, it's quite simple and intuitive. It's that when people do bad things and they do it freely, they deserve to be punished. They deserve to suffer for what they did. But our retribution-based justice system assumes that we can know when people are acting freely, that we can draw a clear line between free will and luck. There are some serious problems with this assumption. For example, I might believe in free will because I see the mind as separate from the brain and the body. I can't fully control my body what genetic disorders I might have or diseases I might get, but I can control my mind. Many people do believe this, but Joshua Green explains that modern neuroscience has shown this view is wrong. There is no mind separate from the brain. There's no self separate from the body. And that means there's no clear line between where free will ends and luck begins. Recently, for example, multiple teams of scientists concluded that lead exposure in young people leads to problems with impulse control and from there to significant increases in crime. Research like this has profound implications for law and legal responsibility. Institutes like the Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior, where Green is a faculty member, are working to translate these scientific findings into sound legal and public policy. The key point is that we don't fully control our genes, our bodies, or our environments. 
And so we can't control all the factors that impact our choices, our behavior, or the consequences of our behavior. In his 2011 Atlantic article, The Brain on Trial, neuroscientist David Eagleman said it's impossible to, quote, untangle the hopelessly complex web of genetics and environment that constructs the trajectory of a human life. There are no clear-cut, luck-free zones. In the 1970s, some philosophers began looking closely at the problem of luck in relation to moral judgments. Sometimes, our judgments about other people are influenced by luck, accident, or simply something beyond the person's control. Philosophers Bernard Williams and Thomas Nagel called these cases moral luck. Moral luck can refer to good or bad luck. Here's one example. Two friends, they have a few too many beers, and they each drive home from the bar. They each fall asleep at the wheel, and their car spins out of control on the snowy road. One of them is fortunate. They're lucky. They run into some bushes. But another person spins off the road and runs into a person, say, a little girl, you know, building a snowman in her front lawn, and kills her. This is Fiery Cushman, a psychology professor at Harvard who studies moral luck. When he presented this scenario to subjects as part of his research, the response was clear. Everybody uh, felt that it, w that it made some difference whether you were the, the lucky or the unlucky perpetrator. Both drivers drove drunk. It was just bad luck that there happened to be a person near the second driver's car. But people still felt that the second driver's case deserved a different response. This is a classic case of moral luck. Moral luck is a puzzle because the very idea of judging someone for their luck violates a deep moral intuition. People who, for the first time, hear this um, expression, moral luck, it sounds to them paradoxical, an oxymoron, this can't be true. So, and, and this is so because we all have this very strong uh, Kantian intuition. We are responsible only for what is within our control. That's Daniel Statman, a professor of philosophy at the University of Haifa in Israel. For centuries, moral philosophers have affirmed this belief that we are responsible only for what we can control. And what we control most of all are our intentions. Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, and Immanuel Kant all claim that intention plays a key role in morality. Even Jesus seemed to affirm this view when he prayed during his crucifixion, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These philosophical ideas are often reflected in everyday practice. Psychologists have found that people generally blame others less when they cause harm accidentally and blame them more when the harm was intentional. In fact, judging others on their intentions seems to be built into our very brains. Recent work in neuropsychology has found that the brain's networks for moral cognition and social cognition overlap. When we make moral judgments about someone, we're also making judgments about that person's mental states, including her intentions. So if we usually judge people for what they intend, why do cases of moral luck arise? Why do most of us still think the unlucky drunk driver deserves more punishment than the lucky one if neither of them intended to kill? Fiery Cushman thinks he's found an answer. The key point, he says, is that moral judgment isn't just one kind of judgment. There's all kinds of different moral judgments that we make. Did you act rightly or wrongly? Are you a good or bad person? Should you be punished or not? And those are all related questions, but they're not identical questions. Cushman's research shows that our brains answer these different questions using different processes. One process looks at what the other person intended. Intentions are useful for determining whether someone is good and trustworthy in general. 
But there's another process that looks at how much harm the person caused, because that tells us how much we should punish him for this particular incident. Often, these processes align. We punish someone because he intentionally caused harm. But in cases like the drunk drivers, these processes can come to different conclusions. On the one hand, I feel like these two drunk drivers should be treated equally. That's the part of your brain that's designed to choose future social partners. On the other hand, I feel like one of these people should be punished a lot more than the other. Yeah, that's the part of your mind that was designed to teach people and modify their future behavior by showing them something about the consequences of their behavior. Those two parts of your brain are in a fight with each other, and that friction between two different mental systems is what generates all the heat and controversy of a philosophical dilemma. Cushman's research can explain how this conflict arises, but we still need to decide which argument should win. Our criminal justice system claims to adhere to the first argument, that intention is what matters. But some criminal sentencing rules, like the drug overdose laws, seem to flout those principles and punish people harshly for things they never intended. The accused are blamed simply for having bad luck. But if we discount luck, we're ignoring the brain's second argument. Perhaps we should punish the drivers differently because punishments modify people's future behavior. Joshua Green describes this consequentialist approach to law and punishment. The consequentialist rationale is we punish people in order to produce good consequences. And here the main specific consequentialist reason is deterrence. Deterrence can be a good reason to punish people for accidents. Right now, however, our laws aren't necessarily effective deterrence. The New York Times ran a story in May 2018 about people prosecuted under Len Bias laws for the overdose deaths of friends and family members. One tragic case involves a star medical student in Pennsylvania named Caleb Smith. Smith tried to order Adderall online for his girlfriend, but the pills turned out to be the potent opioid fentanyl, and she overdosed and died. Prosecutors then charged Smith with causing her death. Facing a minimum of 20 years in prison and racked with guilt, Smith committed suicide. Smith's punishment, 20 years in prison, might satisfy a retributive impulse, but punishments like this might not reduce future crimes. Police officers interviewed by the Times expressed doubt that these overdose prosecutions have had any measurable impact on the supply and demand of drugs. In this case, punishing people for bad luck seems to just compound a tragedy with more tragedy. But what if taking responsibility for bad luck could produce a positive outcome? Consider this hypothetical situation Daniel Statman describes. I, I, I hit somebody. It wasn't my fault. But he, he, the, here's the guy, you know, um, lying there in, uh, on the pavement or on, on the road, screaming for help. The anti-luck people should say that my responsibility isn't different than that of any other pedestrian walking around or any, any other driver. If we don't accept moral luck, we aren't responsible for repairing damage we cause accidentally. If it was an accident, it's not my fault. So it's not my problem. That's a very cruel world. A world where we can, you know, just walk away from the, the, the results of our actions if those results were a matter of luck. In a world without moral luck, philosopher Margaret Urban Walker notes, there would be just as many accidents and just as many victims. There would just be fewer people stepping in to help them. This is one reason why our interviewees said, ultimately, they would rather live in a world with moral luck than without it. I mean, when I walk in the street and somebody bumps into me, 
with no bad intention at all, just because, you know, he slipped on something and so on, I would like that person to take responsibility, to apologize for bumping into me, to help me pick up, you know, my bugs and so on, to take responsibility. That would be a better world, a better world where people would, would, would be required to take responsibility for the results of their actions, even if the, the, these results are often a matter of luck. I'd rather live in a perfect world with no moral luck than a perfect world with moral luck. But in the real world, I'd rather have moral luck. The only leverage that we have to communicate to other people the ways in which their behavior needs to change is to exploit an accident as a teachable moment. And in that real world, I'm glad that we have moral luck as a tool. Taking the accident seriously is going to be an important part, I think, of self-improvement. Self-improvement is another reason not to eliminate luck from our judgments. According to Cushman's research, we improve the most when we are judged for outcomes, not intentions. People learn best. They find it easiest to learn when you reward and punish them for what they actually did as opposed to what they were trying to do or what their intentions were or what their moral character is. That's the way that human learning is designed. We don't learn from our intentions. We learn from what happens. In some criminal cases, the punishments can go far beyond what's effective in helping people change their ways. Many people who commit crimes are assigned too much responsibility. But in our everyday lives, we can change ourselves for the better if we take on a little more responsibility. At least that's how Fiery Cushman sees it. I'll give you an example right from my own life. We had a, a newborn and a two-year-old, and we weren't getting a whole lot of sleep in the house. And when we drove places, I, I just all of a sudden, I started turning the car off while it was still in drive. Like I'd pull into a parking spot, forget to put the car in park, just turn it off. And understandably, this really ticked off my wife. And she'd, she'd get pretty upset with me for doing this again and again. And my first response, this is so unfair. I'm, obviously, I'm not trying to turn the car off in drive. I'm just completely sleep deprived and I'm just not thinking straight. It's not fair to get angry with me. We all make minor mistakes that can have harmful effects. And our first response is often to make an excuse. I wasn't trying to do any harm. I just had bad luck. But then Cushman rethought his response. But then, actually, through thinking about my own research, I realized that it was important not to say, oh, these are circumstances beyond my control. I can't do anything about it. It's not my fault. But to listen to what my wife was saying, which was, hey, this might be hurting the car. What her getting frustrated with me was doing was sending a useful social signal saying, Let's try to find ways <laughs> to change your behavior. That feedback that we get for even our accidental behaviors, it does have the capacity to prevent accidents in the future. If I want to escape blame, I can always explain why you shouldn't hold me responsible for my mistakes. But if I want to create better outcomes, I can take responsibility for that because then I'm less likely to make the same mistake again. Our world is complex and our actions can have unpredictable consequences. 
it's hard to untangle luck from choice. That means it can be hard to answer the question, am I responsible for this? But sometimes the better question to ask is, should I take responsibility? And then the answer may become clear. I think the, the most useful perspective is when we approach a situation where a bad thing has happened, we want to know how can we prevent that from happening again. I think our, our minds are designed to assign responsibility principally in the places where we have the capacity and the motive to want to see change anyway. In certain situations, I need to take responsibility for the damage I did, even if I didn't intend it, because that's the best way to fix it. It isn't that intentions don't matter. We do distinguish between intentional harm and accidents, and we should. But in many cases, it's impossible to know just how much the outcome depended on choice and how much depended on chance. Rethinking luck can change the way we design our laws and punishments. Instead of focusing on how much blame people deserve for their past actions, we can ask how their behavior and the lives of those around them can be improved in the future. This approach can open us to a justice based more on restoration and reconciliation than revenge and retribution. We can start promoting that vision of justice in our own lives. It might require the hard work of taking responsibility for bad luck, but sometimes that's the most moral thing we can do. This episode was produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Special thanks to the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary for archival recordings related to Len Bias. Ministry of Ideas is an initiative of the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, Pallavi Kathamasu, and Maria McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe Ideas section for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, or becoming a patron on Patreon. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at Zachary at ministryofideas.org. We would love to hear from you. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today, I want to tell you about a new Hub & Spoke show called Iconography. Each episode, host Charles Gustine tackles an icon that, in its own special way, has become synonymous with a place— ranging from architecture, works of art, or even a particular attitude. A recent episode explores John Smith, that complicated figure at the center of the American origin story. You can learn more at iconographypodcast.squarespace.com. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.